Hello, everyone. Art Tomasetti back with you for this month's edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. It's May, which means I have the additional duty of monitoring the monarch butterflies in our backyard as they transform from caterpillars to butterflies. Not really sure what I'm supposed to do, but my wife tells me to monitor them every day before she leaves work, so I monitor. Now, they are fellow flyers, so it's all good. And did you know that it could take several generations to complete their 3,000-mile migration? And they do that all without GPS, compass, watch, or map. As Mr. Spock would say, Fascinating. Looking back in aviation history for this week, our time machine takes us to 1964, where on the 12th of May, after nearly two months, Joan Miriam Smith completed a solo around-the-world flight. Departing California on March 17th, she planned to follow Amelia Earhart's eastbound route, but due to the time of the year, she put herself at a disadvantage with weather. Unlike Earhart, who had two of the world's foremost navigators in her flight crew, Mrs. Smith would fly alone, her only companion, a small teddy bear. She would navigate by pilotage, dead reckoning, and the use of existing radio beacons like NDBs and VORs. Her 1958 Piper Apache had problems with leaking fuel tanks, radio equipment, autopilot, hydraulic systems, electrical systems, and a heater that would not work. And of course, she had to deal with the adverse weather. After 55 days, 20 hours, and 12 minutes, she arrived back at Oakland International Airport having flown approximately 27,750 miles. The circumnavigation had taken a total of 175 flight hours with 47 hours on instruments and 26 hours of nighttime. Ms. Smith is credited with having made the first solo circumnavigation of the Earth by the equatorial route and the longest solo flight. Last month, we finished a discussion with NASA pilots talking about their all-electric research aircraft, the X-57. This month, we'll shift over to the commercial side of electric aviation, talking with Chief Test Pilot for Joby Aviation, Justin Baines. Okay, welcome everyone. One of the great things about doing this podcast is connecting with people, and sometimes those people are old friends. So today, my guest is Justin Baines, who is the Chief Test Pilot for Joby Aviation. I first met Justin back in 1998 when we were working together on a little project called Joint Strike Fighter. And I will tell you that Justin is one of the bravest pilots I know, as he was willing to fly in the VOC Harrier as the safety pilot while I controlled the aircraft from the evaluation pilot seat. So Justin, thanks for being with us today. I know your schedule is incredibly busy, so I appreciate you taking a few minutes out. So I wonder if you could start off by just telling us uh, a little bit about your background and then your current role and what you're working on at Joby. Sure. Thanks, Deb. I appreciate it. And I tried to uh, not mention any, any dates uh, from the early part of my career because uh, we were just talking about uh, getting old. So I joined the Royal Air Force um, uh, in the last century and uh, a few years before we met, uh, went straight onto the Harrier and spent uh, four years flying the Harrier frontline duties. A test pilot school, I was fortunate to do on exchange. So I was at Edwards, uh, TPS 95A. Uh, at Edwards, and then back to Boscombe Down to work primary duties on the on the VAR carrier, which you mentioned, which is our experimental fly-by-wire development vehicle, two-seat aircraft, much like the uh, the Calspan uh, in-flight simulators uh, with a safety pilot with conventional controls, obviously an evaluation cockpit with uh, fly-by-wire controls. And, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't uh, – flying with you wasn't nearly as brave as flying with some of your colleagues that we both know who I'm talking about. <laughs> That's another matter altogether, and not for public. Uh, but I hope you're listening. Um, and uh, uh, so after that, uh, right time, right place, I was posted to the Joint Strike Fighter program with you, and we had a great couple of years, two and a half years, um, and both of us uh, were fortunate to fly uh, X-35 A, B, and C models, which was great, obviously finishing up with the B 
which was a real highlight of career. And uh, you wonder where, where you're going to go after that. It's a bit like being a sports star. You know, your career peaks when you're young, and then you think, well, what do I do now? Uh, anyway, uh, went to test pilot school to be an instructor. A couple of times uh, ended up as uh, chief flying instructor on the fixed wing side. Spent a lot more time on the VAR carrier as a civilian after I retired. I uh, went back to that project for, for a number of years before um, a couple of years with a, a, another flight test organization in the UK as a civilian and then over here to Joby Aviation to join the uh, brave new world of, uh, of uh, Silicon Valley startups and electric aviation. So hopefully that's not too long-winded of, uh, of a summary. No, that's great. So I've got to tell you, I own an electric vehicle and I've had it for about six months and it has taken some getting used to because it's different than a internal combustion engine car. So it's taken a little bit of different driving style and getting used to. So you're dealing with an electric airplane. Tell us what's different about an electric airplane. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the car because, you know, there, there are parallels there. I mean, obviously, you know, the, uh, the power source and, uh, and, and many of the considerations that go with that are obviously the same for an electric vehicle and electric airplane. And clearly the airplane flies. And so you don't just pull over to the side of the road when you run out of uh, charge in your electric airplane. Uh, but many of the same things apply. So, you know, range is generally lower and, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to fly across the Atlantic and these EVTOLs. So, you, you know, you are flying with a more limited range and uh, you have to take account of that. Plus the, you know, the very nonlinear uh, aspects of lithium batteries. So, um, you know, a, a tank of gas is, is the same energy value um, that they can either sort, well, you know, per litre or per gallon of gas is, is the same energy value no matter what you do with the airplane, uh, whether it's cold, whether it's hot, uh, whether it's the last gallon of gas or the first gallon of gas to come out of your fuel tanks, it's the same. That is not true about lithium batteries. And as they discharge, as, well, first of all, as they age, internal resistance goes up and, and the amount of charge they can carry goes down. So their ability to produce power goes down with age, as, as you all know from your iPhones. And secondly, the um, amount of power you can draw out of a lithium battery decreases as the state of charge goes down. So if you've had an old iPhone and you turn on the flashlight and it's still got 20% left and suddenly the, the phone dies, well, that's lithium batteries. Well, as you put your power consumption up, so their ability to satisfy the power consumption goes down. Uh, and so these are all considerations, particularly so for a vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, because the vertical landing comes with a high power requirement at the end of the sortie. So there's a lot of considerations all around of those fundamental uh, aspects of lithium batteries. And you've been working on this for a little while now. So what are some of the challenges you've already encountered? And what do you see as some of the biggest challenges going forward? And, and I know you can't talk very much in specifics, but even just in general terms, for electric aviation, since, again, there's a lot of folks who are getting into that uh, particular business. Our recent podcast was with two of the pilots who are working on the X-57 at NASA. So there's a lot of activity going on in the electric airplane space. But so what do you see as some of the challenges you've already encountered and those going forward? Well, it's interesting. I'd actually put the, the major challenges as uh, much more cultural and organizational than, than technical. I mean, technical challenges in different programs have you know, have different technical flavors according to what you're trying to do, but but they're all still they're all technical challenges, and to every technical challenge there's a solution, uh, as there is to organizational challenges. But what we have in 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 this new world of electric aviation is a lot of new starters, a lot of people coming into aviation, the necessity of, of applying aviation discipline to new engineering companies is, uh, it, it's not a challenge in that it's difficult to do, but it's actually the, one of the biggest parts of the job of, of, of starting with a, a, new, uh, a new entry to, to aviation, which JV Aviation was a few years ago, we're now pretty mature, but setting up a, uh, a, a test 
team and all the procedures that go with it, you know, we're all used to joining established companies, whether in the military or in, in, in other aspects of aviation, where, where all of this thing's been, been developed over, you know, 50, 70 years since the, the, the birth of, of sort of uh, professional test, uh, test aviation. And you come to a new company and setting all that up from scratch, you realize how much we take for granted what, what's gone and those that have gone before us in, in uh, other organizations. And so there's a lot of, uh, of effort and work in, in doing that. But the rest of it actually is surprisingly, you know, it's just like, as I said, any technical challenge has a technical solution. And when you've got the incredibly bright people that we have uh, in this country and, and elsewhere who apply themselves to these new new areas, you know, it is extraordinary the level of capability in my colleagues here at Joby and at our other competitors in, in the same space. Uh, it really is eye-watering uh, how quickly and efficiently uh, problems can be tackled and solved. So. Uh, I hope that's not a disappointing answer in some ways. You know, you'd like to think there was some big technical challenge that we were facing, but actually there isn't uh, any big technical challenge in this area other than all of them, if you know what I mean. Uh, and they're all uh, soluble and, and, and our industry, ourselves and our competitors are moving forward in a very exciting way to bring uh, a very different form of aviation and form of transport to our, our civilian populations. So, okay, so I want to I go back. And one of the things you just mentioned is, you know, talking about your team and having to put, a, put together a team you know, both of us have experience working with the military and other organizations where your teams were diverse, but you, you always had those folks who had been around for a while, had been on multiple projects, multiple programs. You know, they they were folks who've been doing this their whole life. What's it like today in, in the teams that you're working on? Do you have those people who have that? I would, I would think it'd be a little tough to have people with a lot of depth of electric airplane knowledge at this particular point in time. Yeah, absolutely not. We don't have the people with the specific knowledge of electric airplanes and electric VTOL for sure. But it's sort of uh, parallel to my previous point, you know, a technical challenge is, is just a technical challenge. And so while this is very different and, you know, you, you can imagine our predecessors going into jet aviation in the 1940s, you know, things are very different and they probably had less range back then than we have now because of the, the way the, uh, you know, the fuel efficiency was pretty poor and so on. So, I think it's not really those technical aspects that, that are that important. And But the other side of it, building the team and relying on the experience, well, we're still relying on the experience of people who've been in, in, in test flying and in aviation uh, for a while, just not specifically electric aviation experience, but with, but all the principles, you know, the, the same principles of flight test, you know, planning, execution, reporting, those principles don't change whether you're in a piston engine in the 1920s with an open cockpit, a jet engine in the late 1940s, a sophisticated turbojet of today, or, or something that's equally new today as those things were in the past, you know, such as uh, electric aviation. You've worked on a lot of different technologies, and both of us worked on new technology with the X-35. But for the new technology you're working on today, have you had to develop any unique procedures, any unique risk mitigations as you move forward with your development and testing? Yeah, of course, there are specifics uh, that we've had to develop, and they, they relate to um, some of those things that are new, which is basically lithium-powered batteries being your source of energy. And so um, some of this is proprietary, which, which I can't really talk about, but, but there are specific procedures uh, around that. We, we have no fuel gauge in the same way as you have a fuel gauge, as I was explaining earlier, because the, you know, the calorific value of your gasoline doesn't change. And so we have uh, procedures around uh, maximizing uh, the capability of our batteries to deliver power so we can maximize our range. We have procedures around uh, being, you know, the safety issues uh, relating to uh, being able to hand failures, handle failures and tolerate failures 
in our aircraft, which may create a, uh, a sort of follow-on effect on the batteries, uh, because you know we mentioned the non-linear aspects of these batteries. So if you're asking more power out of them, then they've got less power to give. So that means if you have a requirement for more power, you have to take that into account in your safety planning and in your uh, range and endurance planning. Uh, and so we, we look to be able to handle failures uh, and uh, obviously any any single failure. I think a good parallel would be like, you know, multi-engine takeoff performance. You plan your, your takeoff performance and your V1 and so on so that you can always either abort or go after an engine failure. And we have a similar concept in the sense that we, we have always the ability to tolerate that failure and continue flying to a safe landing. And because of that unique and non-linear nature of our, our batteries, there's a lot of thinking that has to go into uh, how you plan all that out. But uh, once you get to grips with it and go through the the different scenarios, uh, just like anything, you can you can plan for all these eventualities. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of complex planning involved in that. So along those lines, in other programs, you have the opportunity to get in a simulator and go out and practice, rehearse, and evaluate things. And we spend a lot of time in simulators working up towards X-35 flying. Do you have that opportunity to do that in what you're working on today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the modern world, that's just absolutely essential. I mean, we can move so much more safely uh, with the power of simulation and, you know, with the capability of, uh, uh, you know, I sometimes reflect on Moore's Law Turbo since since the days of the X-35 and the, you know, the NDI, nonlinear dynamic inversion controllers that we had back then. And we've had like 20 years of Moore's Law since then. And so the capability we have in, in software and in computational power and in simulation and the power of CFD that just gets better and better, these tools are, are really a core part of, of being able to move both uh, rapidly and safely. And so we use uh, simulation, in, as you'd expect, in, in almost every area you can think of, including um, you know, pilots in the loop, flight simulation, of course. All right. All great stuff, Justin. Thanks. So I'm going to give you a final opportunity. So this is where you get to impart one final thing that you'd like to pass on to the uh, the flight test community that's listening to the podcast today. So, Justin yeah. Payne's Pearl of Wisdom. Okay. Yeah, I do have one thing, actually, which which I, I thought I was going to bring up in, in earlier, but, but it didn't happen. Uh, and that is the paradigm we have over flight safety. The Silicon Valley approach, which has served this country and the technology of this country, or certainly Silicon Valley so well, is, you know, a, a very dynamic, uh, fail-fast uh, mentality. You know, build it, try it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll build it different. Uh, and, of course, that doesn't work too well in aviation. There is uh, a way that you can get uh, the best of both worlds. And the power of rapid prototyping and fading fast, uh, of course, we can do that at the bench level, we can do that at the subscale level, all very easy. But now suddenly we build a full-scale vehicle, albeit it may be remotely piloted or optionally piloted. But here's the, ca- the question, and what's, what paradigm do we, do we attach to this? Do we, do we apply the same level of of safety and vigor, uh, rigor rather, over uh, insurance site safety for an optionally piloted vehicle just because it's full size, or do we allow some uh, additional speed uh, to occur by virtue of taking risks? And that's not a simple question to answer, but it's one that as a professional flight tester needs to be answered because you cannot, you know, potentially if you're in a range or if you're in private land, still just a machine. So to what level can we begin to uh, move uh, more quickly while still preserving the professionalism and integrity of our, of our profession. And of course, we need to make sure that we don't ever allow ourselves into a full sense of security because sometime you might be developing your technology remotely piloted, but sometime that optionally piloted vehicle becomes a piloted vehicle. And of course, right, right at that moment, you're back to the same level of, of rigor that we've always applied to flight test. And so 
so there's a balance there that has to be struck. And, um, you know, in startups that have uh, limited funds and have to uh, reach the end before they uh, reach the end goal before they reach the end of their funding, you know, there is a balance to be struck. And if human, human life is not at risk, where do you balance the speed versus the, uh, the, the safety and integrity of our profession? And that's a, a, not a simple answer, and it's not an answer I can give. There is a balance between those two, uh, just so long as you never lose sight of the fact that when a uh, human being steps into that vehicle, uh, you're back to all the uh, normal rigor of insurance like safety that we have in our, in our profession that developed over many years. Thanks in, in no small part to the society and all the, uh, the shared learning that we're able to benefit from, from the uh, wisdom of those that have gone before. Great, great comments, Justin. So, again, I know you have a busy schedule and your days are long, so I want to thank you again for taking a few minutes out to talk with us today. Uh, we wish you all the best success as you continue the work there at Joby Aviation. And I think, speak for myself at least, is I look forward someday to being able to get an electric vehicle and move from point A to point B. Fantastic. I look forward to that too. Thanks so much, Debbie. Always great catching up with old mates. Okay, so now we've done three podcasts looking at electric aircraft. So let me ask you this. Are you ready to board one and take a flight? Do you think that someday you will park your electric aircraft next to your electric vehicle and have to decide which one to commute to your job at Spacely Sprockets at that morning? If I were to ask you, would you rather be luckier or good, what would you say? Now, if you're on your way to Las Vegas, maybe you answer one way. But if you're embarking on a test flight, maybe you answer another. But don't answer yet before you check out this month's edition of the Flight Test Safety Fact for some thoughts and discussions on that classic question. For upcoming events, we will be providing a virtual flight test safety workshop on the 27th of May with the theme of safety promotion as part of a safety management system. Registration is open, so go to the website www.flighttestsafety.org to sign up. The Society of Experimental Test Pilots has announced its annual Symposium and Banquet Save the Date for 27 through 30 October in Anaheim, California. More details to follow. SFTE has extended its call for papers for its annual symposium, which will be held in St. Louis from the 10th through the 15th of October. You now have until 31 May to submit your abstract. And finally, EAA is soliciting presentations for Oshkosh 2021, which takes place 26 July through 1 August. As always, please check the latest details for these events on the organization's websites. Well, that's a wrap for May. Share the podcast with someone you think would be interested and share your thoughts and ideas with us in the comments section or via email. We would love to hear from you. I'll be back next month. And until then, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.